0: All right, Uh, there are some notes, I think, that are going around, and if my volume goes in and out, please bear with me, I'm using the, the mic here. I thought it might be good to take this opportunity to look at the purpose of prophecy, and that the main reason why is this morning in the book of Hebrews, it talks about laying aside this foundation of resurrection and judgment. So the Hebrews chapter 6 briefly talks about prophecy. So I thought, it, in terms of resurrection and, and judgment, so I thought it would also be a good opportunity just to take a time to study the penultimate purpose of prophecy. My professor and seminary, Dr. zimmick he's recently passed away, But years ago, decades ago, he was invited to go to a prophecy conference to be one of the keynote speakers. And he said, Okay, I would love to do that. My paper, my session will be on the purpose of prophecy. And they said, Then we don't want you to come because we want you to teach on something. that's more about the tribulation, or post-mill, or ah ah-mill, or or pre-mill. But if you're going to do it on the divine purpose of prophecy, please don't come. So I thought it would be good this morning for us to take that topic and what is the, not necessarily the ultimate purpose of prophecy, because the ultimate purpose of prophecy would be what? Ultimately. God's glory. And feel free now to ask questions. Okay, when I'm teaching, I'll ask some questions, or you can also ask questions as I teach. The the ultimate purpose of prophecy is the glory of God and the revelation of Christ. But the secondary purpose, the penultimate purpose of prophecy, what is that? So we're gonna this morning just look at seventeen in different passages, 17 different passages. Now, there's many more in the Old Testament that we could look at. So I'm just choosing a few. And as we look at these verses, you can write out to the side of the verse what the primary purpose is. Underneath the glory of God, this text is saying what about the purpose of why this prophecy is being given. And then at the end, we'll make applications and implications. So first, Matthew 24, somebody read verses 42 to 44. Somebody please read that. Who's going to go first? And then verse forty four for this reason you must matthew twenty four and twenty five are some of the most uh, abundant and clear words on the future and times on eschatology verse forty two and verse forty four give the, the purpose of why Jesus is sharing this. What does the text say? What is the purpose? Verse 42 list the purpose. Be alert. Be ready. What does that mean? Be alert. Be ready. Be watch for it. And even if you look at these parables, like the parable of, of the ten virgins, understand the times, understand that Christ is coming soon, but also be watchful and alert in terms of your own life. You know, be be sober minded uh, Matthew 25 verse 13 be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour. so nobody knows for certain when Christ is coming back. So we need to be always alert, ready, watchful, unlike all the people in the days of Noah. That had no clue, no idea really what was going on, even though they were warned about it. So, here, these wonderful passages, even where it talks about the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, verse 15, which would take you back to Daniel, and he even mentions Daniel, Jesus does, in Matthew 24, verse 14, and even says, Let the reader understand there are certain things we need to understand about prophecy but here Jesus gives the reason why he's sharing this and he says be in alert be ready and he repeats that even in verse 13 Matthew 13 which is a parallel passage this is the revealed word of God and we're seeking to understand these prophetic announcements from our savior and it's basically the Same discourse. Mark 13, verse 33 to 37. And you can look at verses, you know, before and after the context again is the same as Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. And look at verse 33. What are the two commands in verse 33 of Mark 13? What do you see? Look at the text and tell me the commands in verse thirty three. Take heed, keep on the alert, because you don't know when the time is. And then he gives a an illustration. And then in verse 35, what is the command? Watch. Again, be on the alert. And then again in verse 37, what I say to you, I say to you all, be on the alert. Be ready. and even if we will even if we go to Luke Dr. Luke and see how the inspired word of God comes through Dr. Luke I think it's something for us to be impressed by into our hearts and I'm wanting you and I to feel a A burden of what God's word is doing through the incarnate word, the the emphasis of when Jesus is sharing about future events. Luke 21, verse 34. Wait, uh, yeah. Oh, I might have got a wrong passage. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at uh, (laughs) chapter 22. Verse 34, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Again, its context is it's talking about the, the return of Christ. Verse 25, there'd be signs and sun and moon and stars and earth. And then what are the, the commands, the, the imperatives, the, the response that we should make? What do you see in verses 34, 35, and 36? What are the explicit commands that this t- text gives? Luke 21, verse 34. Somebody different. It's right there in the Bible, black and white. Be on the alert, be on guard. Why? So that your hearts won't be what? Weighted down with dissipation and drinking. You, know, you, you, you won't be so overcome by the worries of life that you give yourself to to drinking and become drunk. And then again, be on the alert. So when Christ is sharing about his return and about the end times, and even if he says to understand what Daniel 9 is talking about in terms of is it Daniel 9, Daniel 11, the abomination of a desolation, even when Jesus is talking about that, there's a reason to understand all of this, and that is that we can live righteous lives. Lives that are, are ready for the return of Christ, so we're not overcome by by worry. And also, we're not living however we please, so that when he returns, we won't be ashamed. In other words, there is a, the ultimate reason is the glory of Christ, but the penultimate reason that God gives these prophecies is for life effect to change our lives. Not just to satisfy our curiosity and our interest in the end times, but to make us different people. We see this especially with these Gospels, accounts of our Lord Jesus, but even in a more personal sense. And in John, he's in the Olivet Discourse, John chapter 14, not Olivet Discourse, the, uh, the Upper Room Discourse. And he says, do not let your heart, uh, John 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Then he says, he gives prophecy. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. And then John 14, 6. So here in John 14, 6, I'm saying not John 14, 6, but verse 3, he says, I will come again. Is that? pre tribulational rapture is that pre wrath rapture is that mid tribulational rapture is that post tribulational rapture is it proto gap rapture that you're you, you you i don't believe in a gap but what i'm seeking to point out is that this passage in john fourteen is not emphasizing really study these words hard so you can come to a decision of when the rapture is but rather the the main purpose underneath the glory of God is to what? With your heart. Comfort your hearts. Eschatology, that is the end times, the revelation of it is given to us in order to impact us in terms of that we're not going to be overcome by anxiety. We can be anxious about, is it pre- Mid, post, rapture? Is it pre, mid, post, mill? We can become anxious about those things. (laughs) When really, we should be so overcome that Christ is preparing a place for us, he's coming again, that that helps us not to be so anxious about the things of life. It's not that you shouldn't study those things, but studying those things should cause us more love for Christ, more love for heaven, and more rest in him. This, again, is the emphasis of prophecy repeatedly. John 16. John 16. Verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Right? He's given prophecy. He's saying this is going to happen in the near future with implications to our time. Verse 33, these things have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So there is some prophecy that's given here, and it's given in order to give the disciples courage and peace in times of great difficulties. And if we are so overcome and have a wrong emphasis in our hearts about rapture and tribulation and all these specific details, which, which it's good to know and study. But if that becomes the main thing of your eschatology, of your understanding in the last times, that's not the best. It's not the emphasis of Scripture. Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. It's much closer for us, right? We're 2,000 years closer. Verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So we could say. That eschatology, understanding God's revelation for the end times, should help us in our spiritual warfare, right? Put on the armor of light, make no provision for the flesh. I I don't think I've seen it there. I'm I'm sure there is, but I would love to see a volume about eschatology, and that's all about shepherding your own soul. I've read many, many, many different volumes comparing all the different views of of raptures, pre, mid, post, millennium. I've seen very, very few books just list passage after passage and say, understanding this passage, this is how we should live our lives. There are some, but many more on seeking to debate about the exact time and hour and so forth when maybe instead we should have a discussion on how does the return of Christ help us in spiritual warfare there's very little discussion 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15 this is a great chapter on the resurrection one of my favorite chapters in the bible the whole chapter is on the resurrection uh, verses 42 to 49 are fantastic because it, it talks about our future physical resurrected bodies will be powerful and imperishable. Even talks about that moment then we, where we will be transformed, verses 50 to 57. But verse 58, somebody read verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, is giving a, a summary and an invitation after all the revelation about even our physical resurrection. What does it say? Somebody read verse 58. Understanding more about our own resurrection, should lead us to be people that stick to it, that don't go up and down, you know, spiritually, and that we give all that we have in the work of the Lord and the ministry that God has given us, knowing that our labor is not for nothing because we're going to be resurrected and be with him forever. This is, we've seen since Matthew, the main emphasis underneath the glory of God is that understanding eschatology should produce a life change in us. It should give us great encouragement, and courage to to persevere, to believe and to press forward for Christ. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, one of my favorite books in the Bible is Colossians. One of my Favorite phrases is Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, where it says, when Christ, who is our life, that's a great phrase, who is our life, is revealed, taking that to be his return, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Based upon that, what does verse 5 say? Yes. So there is a direct relationship between eschatology and sanctification. There's a direct relationship between the return of Christ and overcoming anger. Our lust, our unforgiveness. And it's all here in Colossians chapter 3. There's much to say. I'm, I'm going quick just so we get an understanding of the burden that Scripture is giving with the return of Christ in terms of its purpose. Right? We could stay in these passages for a long time, but I want us to to feel the weight of all these passages just on a brief Sunday morning. First Thessalonians 4, verse Verses 13 to 18, a a classic text on the rapture. Though you won't find the word rapture here, that's the Latin word. The word rapture comes from a Greek word, the word caught up. You see that in verse 17. But this passage, it's primarily given... I'm not saying it's wrong to have a a view on the rapture. But for example, I was at a school with some other high school, a public high school, talking to some students. There were other pastors and I, and we were talking about the end times, and I was seeking to speak about Christ and his return and, and the future judgment. And this other pastor then, uh, sought to correct me and to give his view of the rapture. When, okay, that, that's fine, but that wasn't the best time and place, nor the emphasis of Scripture. The emphasis of Scripture is not the timing of the rapture. Look here in 1 Thessalonians four, thirteen through 18 and wh- what is the emphasis, the point, the reason why the Spirit of God, through Paul, is sharing this? Verses 13 to 18. Look at verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not what? Grieve. So this eschatology is given about the return of Christ is going to come back for you if you're alive. If you've already died and you believe that Jesus died and rose again. Then you already are with the Lord, and when he comes back and you're still alive, he'll take you to be with those who are with him. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore what? Comfort one another with these words. Some of the Thessalonians, and you can see this in Second Thessalonians, had believed that they had missed the return of the Lord the Lord had already returned. Have you ever thought, have I missed the rapture? You've heard, I think it was John MacArthur talked about the prank that they pulled on a friend of theirs at college. He was so scared, he had missed a rapture that one morning everybody hid and then somebody got cymbals or a trumpet and blew it very loud. And And then everybody hid and the whole wing of the dorm. And so wasn't John, but this other person thought that they had missed the rapture. Ha- have you ever been there? I- I've been there. Some of you, <clears throat> well, my kids, I guess. Amanda, maybe. But some of you remember the movies in the seventies, Left Behind, right? Those really, really scared me. So when when I used to think about the rapture and the return of the Lord, I wasn't comforted. I was I was anxious and freaking out. I'm going to miss the rapture. This passage. It talks about being caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But it's primarily given to comfort people that if, if you have loved ones that have believed in Jesus, when you die, you're going to go be with them. Or if you're alive when Christ comes back, he's going to take you to heaven and you'll be there with the Lord, with them forever. So don't grieve like the world. That's why God has given us eschatology. Not that we can debate and get mad over it i've heard I've heard seminary professors, pastors. Uh, you can watch I, I would recommend watching it. It's John Piper, Douglas Wilson, Samuel Storms, Jim Hamilton. A dialogue. John Piper is the moderator. Douglas Wilson is post Samuel Storms is all mill, and Jim Hamilton, who is uh, a teacher at Southern Seminary. He's premill. This is public. I'm not gossiping about them. You can watch the video. Samuel Storms at one point says, if the Bible teaches pre-mill, then he can no longer believe in inspiration. So Samuel Storms says, if the Bible teaches pre that he can no longer believe in inspiration. And Douglas Wilson and Jim Hamilton and John Piper are all like, what? <laughs> and Samuel Storms, he's a good preacher. He's more charismatic, but he's a really good preacher, and he loves the Lord. But I'm sure not to say that we can believe a certain way about eschatology, a certain slant, a certain view, and that becomes more important to us than the main reason why eschatology is given to us. And so if this other view is possible, then, ah, what what's going on then? In other words, I, I can have... Fellowship. I can minister with people that are are mill, are pre mill, are post mill, are uh, pre rapture. As long as they believe that Jesus returns in bodily form and there's a heaven and a hell, and get the main purpose of prophecy, and that is that we have life change. That's why this is all given to us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11. through 11. Again, I don't have time to read. Yes, please. That's a good question, because some would say it's a hermeneutical issue. So some would say that Consistent hermeneutics will drive you to a premillennial position. Some of the most consistent uh, Bible interpreters, however, can be Amel. It comes down to individual passages, and it can come down to even how you understand the church, how you understand Old Testament and New Testament relating. Is the church Israel? Is the church today new Israel? So there's a lot of different issues. One of the best things I think to do is to take Revelation chapter 7, where it talks about the 144,000, and use that as a template to study. And then just use regular hermeneutics. We, We went to the book of Revelation. I don't think most of you were here for that. Brett was here for that, and, and we had a great time. We had a fantastic time. And I would say the book of Revelation doesn't talk about pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill at all until you get to Revelation 20, and then you have to deal with it. But they, I would say that it's just different ways of understanding the, the climax of the end of history because pre-mill, Amil, Postmill, all believe that Jesus wins and that there's going to be an eternal kingdom forever and forever and forever and forever. There's some differences with, is there going to be a physical 1,000-year kingdom of Christ on earth with Christ ruling? That is the main issue. Postmill would believe that the church is going to the, the gospel through the church is going to be so victorious. The the gospel is the power of who? God. And God's word is not void. And Jesus wins. And the gospel will win. And the gospel will conquer the whole world. Okay? Yeah. Well, they're all positive. <laughs> and then Almil is... At the end, Jesus wins, but right now is the kingdom. And it's going to, it's going to continue to go this way until Christ comes back. Premill is things are going to get really bad. At the same time, the gospel is powerful and it's effective, and many people are going to be saved. But the nations need to be judged because of their sin. But at the very end, Christ will come back in, in blazing glory. And then there will be a thousand-year kingdom. So none of those views are heretical. They all are seeking to honor Christ and the Word of God. Slightly different emphasis on that climactic time at the very end. And I think what needs to be done is taking individual passages and studying them. Often what's done is there can be a lot of systematizing the theology before doing the exegesis. And we, we should do the exegesis and then whatever it says, it says. So I, I hope that's helpful. Yes, please. My professor at, at seminary, at the Master's Seminary, would believe that the Bible is not conclusive with, uh, with um, teaching a rapture position. So what that view would hold would be basically post-trib. So that would be at the end, Christ will come back. But there's no rapture in terms of all of a sudden, you know, uh, one billion people, however many Christians are gone. So they would say it'd basically be a post-trib rapture view. Yeah. And then some believe pre-rapture, That is, most of the wrath in the tribulation seems that it will come in the second half of the tribulation. So right before then, that's when the the church is raptured. Some people believe that it will happen before that whole seven-year tribulation period starts. And again, it's not wrong to study that. We should study that, come to our own conclusion. But ultimately, we need to study that so that we can be more godly. Because we can become very convinced and determined about our understanding of eschatology and yet be pugnacious oh, or yell at, at our spouse <laughs> or yell at somebody that has a different view, right? He's on He's post He's pre-Rap Raps. Ah, I've heard, again, I, I, commentators that I love and I respect. Then I'll listen to them give maybe a a message on the book of Revelation and what they say about opposing views. It's terrible. So we need to be careful and we need to follow God's word in terms of the main thing. And the main thing is how we live our lives. And, for example, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you were also doing. Now, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That verse is often used to say the church won't go through the tribulation. Because the church is not destined for wrath. Well, you can look at, I think it's Revelation chapter 12. The church is there. It talks about they overcome the beast by the blood of the lamb. So the church is in the book of Revelation. It is in chapters 4 to 19. You you could even believe in the pre-trib rapture. But people do get saved during the tribulation, and they are still a part of the church. And that's where it becomes an issue about hermeneutics, because some people will say, some scholars, it doesn't say the word church from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 22, therefore Their church is not in the book of Revelation. Well, it says they overcome the beast by the blood of the lamb. That's referring to believers that, that trust Jesus. Yes. Yes. Thank you. No. Yes. So, uh, eschatology doesn't necessarily involve a view of charismatic or non-charismatic. So, you could be charismatic and be pre-mill and pre-trib. You could be charismatic and be ah-mill or post-mill or pre-rapture. You could be non-charismatic and be any of those views. There's no connection with view of spiritual gifts. Uh, For example, Samuel Storm, he's charismatic. He's Amil. John Piper is charismatic. And he's pre-mill, post-trib rapture. (laughs) So being charismatic or non-charismatic, it doesn't normally factor into this. And to these views, when we look at first thessalonians five nine, that can often be again a a hotbed of debate. And debating and discussing is, is not wrong unless our emotions get too stirred up by it. But what I'm seeking to point out is that becomes the verse often to talk about proving a rapture view. What I would like to see is more discussion on verse eleven. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Eschatology is given as a means, not, not not, primarily, not taken up the whole time, shouldn't be, what's your view of how many toes does the dragon have? And this toe represents what? But rather, it should be, what do you need to repent of in light of that Christ is returning? Maybe today. How should you then live? Because you're going to meet the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. That's the discussion. How can you comfort somebody who's lost a loved one because of this revelation that we have? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says in verse 2, well, verse 1 says, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, so that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. Again, we see that this return of our Lord, whatever view you want to take, whatever, you know, time, chronological time, chronological schedule. Look, if God wanted to, he could have made it very clear in his word precisely when he was returning. He's left some ambiguity in there. What is clear is that we should not be shaken to the fact that we've missed the return of the Lord. It's very clear on that. Yes, Amen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All the promises of God would be null and void. Yes. That's right. Yeah. He wouldn't be God. Yes. Amen. Even look at uh trying to go a little bit quicker, look at second second Peter chapter three, verse fourteen. Uh, Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Verse 12 and and 11, uh, verse 10 is talking about the day of the Lord and there's going to be a new heaven and, and a new earth. So what should our response be? That we be a holy people and be at peace. We live in a crazy time period, right? The Kremlin, some kind of drone hit it. It was the Ukrainians, but we back Ukraine. So was it the U.S.? Is it a Russian false flag? Is it a terrorist trying to get Russia and the U.S. fighting each other? Who knows? <laughs> it's crazy. But you know what? The Lord's going to return. He's in charge. He's king. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords, the master of the universe. So we should be at peace. We can pray. We can be concerned about that. But our souls are at peace because the Lord is going to return. But then again, it's. There can be a much more personalized eschatology. First John three. 1 John three. Verse two. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet. What we will be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. Talking about the the return of Christ. Verse 3 And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So, how caught up are we on eschatology? If I'm that careful, and I have in the past been so caught up with seeking to prove a pre tribulational rapture and pre millennialism that actually I'm not caught up with the return of Christ and his glory so that I, I'm given more to prayer and more to holiness. I simply want to come to a conclusion. It's not wrong to come to a conclusion in our minds about what the Bible is teaching. But that should lead to me having a heart that's more impressed to follow Christ and to be pure and to be holy and to be at peace. This is what Scripture is saying. Now, again, we, we don't have tons of time. I have to go quickly. The whole book of Revelation, some of you, I, I know, again, don't know this. I, I, it's, not the, it's not revelations. It's revelation. It's not plural. And so one time at Bible study, I said, nobody say plural. Revelations. If you do, you have to do push-ups. So then, after like a few Sundays later, guess who said Revelations? Me. <laughs> so then they said, "You got to do." It was I take a Jason Roland, Tom. You've got to do push-ups now. <laughs> so it is Revelation, Revelations, Revelation one one. It's the revelation that the disclosure of Jesus Christ, not of Satan, not of the Antichrist. Not even necessarily of end times period, but rather the end times is a means to reveal Christ. So actually, the tribulation is not Satan is running the show. God's running the show and he has a plan. And ultimately, Satan is defeated and all the nations are judged and it reveals the authority of Christ. Who who opens the seals? Jesus, the Lamb of God, which shows that he's in charge. But ultimately, their purpose, if you just look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, to every church but one, what is their repeated phrase or phrases? Revelation to the seven churches. Over and over again, he tells these churches to repent. And if you have an ear, you better hear what the Spirit is saying. And then after that, it's given all the future revelation data on what the Lord is going to do than the judgment of the world. But the primary emphasis there is repent. If you were just to go through the book of Revelation and seeking to understand all these different, you know, there's the seals, there's the trumpets there's the judgments i'm sorry the um the bowls and is it chronological right you have the seals eh, open up the seals like i could scroll eh, open those up and then after that you have what you have (laughs) you have the trumpets and then after the trumpets you have the the bowls so is that chronological one after another is it recapitulation so it's just the same thing you know it just keeps going over and over and over and over and over Or is it more like a – not a periscope. What's that? Yeah, so it comes out, which is my view. So you have – you open up the seventh seal, and then comes the seven trumpets, and then you have the seventh trumpet, and out of that comes the the bowls. That's my view. But you could get really into all those different judgments, and is it chronological – is it recapitulation? Exactly what it is. But if you missed the main purpose, you had better repent. Then you missed the whole point. And then later in the book, it talks about rejoice. So I, I I like to say that revelation is about that Jesus wins. So repent and rejoice. Now, what time is it? There is many, many in the Old Testament. I think I'll let you read those yourself. We'll just look at Genesis three fifteen. I just gave some in the Old Testament. It could be a long, long list. Genesis 3, verse 15. And one sense, not the very first prophecy, and since where God told Adam and Eve, if somebody eats of this fruit, they will die, that's prophetic. But especially Genesis 315, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This, of course, is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, and it's a prophecy about the eventual seed of David, about our Savior, our Messiah, that will conquer Satan. Why is it given to Adam and Eve? To give them what? to give them comfort to give them hope so here even this very first prophetic announcement even though there is judgment a lot of judgment that's been that's being given here there's also this hope that's given to encourage the people that they might have faith in God and his plan and in his provision so That's just very quickly, my desire is to try to give you this burden of Scripture where when God reveals end times, when he gives prophecy, you can look at the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you can look at all the minor prophets. When prophecy is given, it's not just here are the end times, okay. It's here are the end times, here's what's going to happen, therefore, you should do this. And so we need to understand what it's saying, certainly, so that we respond to it. If we just understand what it's saying and then don't respond to it, we're missing the main thing. Now, then with that quick list, quick summary, some applications. A. And these are very easy, and you know these already. The ultimate goal of all prophecy is the glory of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, that blank, if you have your notes, is the glory of God. B. There is a basic understanding of these text details, which are helpful to apply them, but they are not the destination. The final destination of these prophecies is not the details. But a life change for Jesus. Like if you're going to take a trip from here to the Grand Canyon. It's fun to read about stuff along the way so you know how to get there. But the ultimate destination is going to the Grand Canyon. We want to be sure that we understand that the destination of these prophecies. And that is that we live humble and holy lives, lives that are alert and pure and ready before God. Even where we're gospelizing, right? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, abounding in the work of the Lord, helping people to know Christ and to follow Christ. See, one could hold certain views on the millennium, the tribulation, and the rapture, and miss the entire point of the prophetic passage. You and I could know all the details and be convinced that we're right and actually be right on the details and yet miss the main detail. (laughs) And that is be humble, be holy, be spotless, be pure, be praying, be helping others to follow Jesus. So then D, I I think we could say it this way. One could have an academic PhD in eschatology and actually not be an es- an expert in eschatology. One can have a PhD in eschatology and actually not be an expert in eschatology because it hasn't changed their life. We need to be in love with Jesus that is the central figure of, of eschatology. If we study eschatology and, and just love it so much, but our love for Jesus doesn't grow, then we've missed the, the whole point. And then E. Yes, study the various positions, but even more, study how to live because of the truth of these passages. Now, I... Go ahead. See, one could hold certain views on the millennium, the tribulation, And the rapture, and miss the entire purpose of that prophetic passage, or the prophetic passages. I'm not, I am saying this to you, but not about you. I'm not saying that this is true of you. We just want to be sure that, yes, we hold our certain views of eschatology, but primarily it's the Lord's going to return. There is a heaven and a hell. There is a resurrection of the dead. That is number one. After that would be the different views of, you know, pre-mill, post-mill, and then after that, the rapture. But right after an Eve, the Lord's going to return in bodily form, resurrection of the dead, heaven and hell, judgment, uh, E- eternity with Christ is, are our lives going to change because of eschatology? That's why all these passages are given. Right? They're given so that we repent and we live more for Jesus. We have... Like, hmm I would just tell him that the Messiah has already came and that he's going to return again. Yeah. Well, I have been to Israel, and I have witnessed to a Jew. And I said that Christ has, the Messiah has already come one time, and then he's going to come again. Yeah. Yeah. The blessed hope, first of all, the blessed hope in the Old Testament and New Testament first is forgiveness and eternal life. That's the blessed hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, the New Testament, so, you know, the apostles and Paul talk all the time that The kingdom of God is here. Even Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. So Jews today are spiritually dead. So they need the gospel of Christ. And their hope should not necessarily be a physical restored kingdom. That is not the hope. The hope is Jesus Christ. I'm pre-mill, so I do believe that there will be a physical... A kingdom on earth that Christ will rule for a thousand years. But that is not the hope. The hope is Jesus Christ and forgiveness in him. And, and that's what Jews need to hear. So the gospel is not premillennialism. The gospel is Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. And so that's how I've shared the gospel in Israel uh, several times, both with Muslims and with Jews. Even Muslims believe in the return of Christ. Did you know that? Muslims believe in the return of Christ. <laughs> so you can even seize upon that and share that as an opportunity with Muslims. You can say, you believe in the return of Christ, right? The Messiah? Yes. And then start sharing the gospel. Well, he's already come once. They believe that. And then share about his life and his death and, and his resurrection. Sure. hmm I think the, well, I think scripture says that the capital of Israel was Jerusalem. I don't know if I would say it's now holy in a type of a sacred sense. Maybe that we can think of that word. It's set apart by God, certainly. But I don't think there is anything mystical or spiritual about it in the sense where if you go there, you're more holy. Like, When we were there, we were there as a church group, and there were some believers there that held off baptizing their kids to have them baptized in the Jordan. And one elder said he didn't think that was right, but then he, he got rebuked for saying that. So we have to be careful about thinking, I'm not saying you, but throughout history, Jerusalem's been as a city so set apart that people would even die or kill others, to get there. So in that sense, no. Is it set apart by God to be the capital of a future physical 1,000-year kingdom that Christ will reign in? I think in that sense, yes. But it's not an emphasis, certainly in the New Testament. That's not there. So... Oh, really? You know, I did not want to go to Israel. I just thought it'd be so boring. I didn't want to go. But then I went with my wife, and it was an incredible trip. I had the best time. <laughs> Sat on the steps of the second temple right there. That that, that was amazing. So That's funny. Sometimes people can have this idea, which I think is not the best idea, that if you go like to the Jordan or Jerusalem, then it can be more spiritual for you to do that. When, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I have to go ahead and, and close. If you have questions, you can ask me afterwards. Lord, thank you that we could have this study. Help us, Lord, to understand the details. Yes, Lord, we want to study them and come to our own conclusions, but help us even more because of the truth revealed, live for you better today than yesterday, Lord, and to trust you wholeheartedly. And Lord, we would end this time by saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Thank you, Lord. Amen.